0: This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance. Glad to be with you all. And today, I want to talk to you about some joyful news of God's good work in and around Cornerstone Church this fall, and in a way, how you should react to it. I shared this in a recent sermon at Cornerstone that I really believe fall of 2023 has been a season marked by incredible and, in some ways, um, unexplainable gospel fruit here at Cornerstone Church. Even... Recently, we had a youth retreat where dozens of students came forward to profess faith in Christ. Salt Company events with dozens and dozens of students coming to faith in Christ. It's a very unique season of gospel harvesting where many, many people, an unusual number of people are turning to Christ, unusual numbers of people. It's a revival-like sort of time here. And it's a season of just great rejoicing for us. We just celebrate. We say, yay, God, you're on the move, you're at work, and we are rejoicing. But I also think along with that comes with it some healthy questions that come along. Anytime as a pastor, I walk into Seasons of Revival, I have to admit, even as a person here, I have the kind of questions that go along with that. You know, is this real? Was that just an emotional experience at a camp? Was that just a mountaintop sort of experience? And I want to shepherd you through how do you react to a report of that sort of unusual work of revival? What do we do when we hear that? Because I do think there is a place for not skepticism, but wisdom that the Bible gives us on how we react to those reports. But I want to kind of pastor you through that. So, first, When you hear a report of an unusual work of God, can I just urge you, rejoice in what you hear. Just for a moment, hit pause on asking all of the wise questions about how real it is and just rejoice with the person in front of you. You know, if your kid comes home from camp and they go, Hey, mom, dad, I just trusted in Jesus as my savior. Don't immediately go, well, you already did that when you were 10. Don't don't qu- squish, don't quash the work of God. Just praise what you do see. You don't have to know everything to be able to rejoice. You know, you just need to rejoice at the work of God that you do see. And secondly, it really helps in rejoicing in that work to know even at Cornerstone the behind the scenes work that has been going on leading up to that mountaintop moment that mountaintop moment of dozens of students trusting Christ on Saturday night at our youth retreat has behind it years of faithful soil tilling and soil and watering and seed sowing and planting work that in a moment was harvested I think of my wife's small group, and I just want to shout out Crystal, who for years drove around girls in the back of a minivan. Boy, I get emotional thinking about it. Um, Just praying for God to work in their life. Showing up at youth group week after week after week, praying for God to work in their life. And a number of those girls that weekend made a choice to give their life to Jesus, that's not just a mountaintop emotional, you know, moment. That's the product of years of a faithful mom and wife driving around a minivan and pleading with God to work. So, when you see God at work, what I want you to do is don't assume that comes out of nowhere. Assume that the fruit of that moment is the harvesting of years of work. So, temper your skepticism and instead just rejoice. That that's the place to start. But, this is really important, rejoicing in a good work of God doesn't mean you throw wisdom out the door. There is actually a healthy sort of wisdom that you should have when you hear of any report of an unusual work of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 has always helped me. It says, don't stifle the spirit, verse 19. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, verse 20. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But then think of 1 Thessalonians 5.21, the literal next verse. What does it say? But test all things. Hold on to what is good. Okay, that is so helpful. 1 Thessalonians 5.19-21. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. You know, don't just throw away a report of God's unusual work and say, oh, sounds like new emotionalism. Don't do that. But what's the command? But test it. There's an actual literal command to test the reality of a spiritual work. That is a command. It's a command to you on one side. It's a command in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. He says we're to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Testing is actually biblical, not just skeptical. So, we should test. So, how do you test the, the report of a work of revival? Well, I'm going to give you the test that I use, and it's really, I just go to one major passage in the New Testament that gives me kind of some paradigm, some some opportunity to think this through, and that's Matthew chapter 13, and two particular parables that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 13. The first is the parable of the sower, the second is the parable of of the wheat and the, the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. And so first, Matthew chapter 13 starts with a parable of the sower. And I'm just going to read a bit of it, starting in verse 3. It says, Then Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered their way. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked it out. Still, other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Well, Jesus goes on then in Matthew chapter 13 verse 18 to explain that parable. He says, listen to the parable of the sower. What does this mean? Well, verse 19, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. Verse 20, the one sown on rocky ground, right? Right? That's the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no roots and is short-lived. So when distress or persecution comes because of the world, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke out the word, it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, by the way, this is the one that we know, there's the gospel fruit. What does that look like? This is the one who hears and understands the word and who produces fruit and yields some 100, some 60, some 30 times what was sown. What's the point of the parable of the sower? It's the same seed. It's the same seed that hits, guys. But it's different fruit. And we know the reality of the plant by the fruit it produces. And the fruit it produces isn't seen immediately. In fact, if you were to come by the one on the rocky ground, they heard the word, they received it with joy, it shot up. Actually, that might even look better at first. The real test is not just a moment, but continuing. It's not just a momentary reaction, not just a fiery flame up for Jesus, but a long-term continuing that produces long-term fruit. So that's the parable of the sower. Keep that in mind. We don't always know right away. That doesn't mean we discourage, we can't rejoice in what we see. It just means we have in the back of our mind, we're pleading with God, God, let this be the seed that produces a fruit, God. That's our goal. Well, second parable from Matthew chapter 13 helps us in times of revival when we hear incredible reports of the work of God. That's the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Matthew chapter 13 verse 24 says he presented another parable to them, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servant came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did all the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. Now here's the key question. So do you want us to go and pull them all up? The servant asked him. Think about that. That's the servant saying right away, like, hey, there's gonna there's weeds in among the wheat. I don't know if it's all good. Do you want me to get out the bad? And what's the master say? Do you want like do you want me to make sure to sort through every kid who comes back from camp having a profession of faith say who's real, who's not? You want me to figure that all out? What's the master say? Verse twenty nine, no. Because when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together till the harvest. And at the harvest, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. That's a profound parable. Even as a pastor, I think about that often. When I look out at Cornerstone Church on a Sunday morning preaching, knowing at any point in time, those hearing the word, there's wheat and there's weeds, both growing And sometimes we don't get to identify those in the moment. Instead, we let them both grow. And then in the end, the Lord sorts that out. That doesn't mean you never call a weed a weed. It doesn't mean that. It just simply means many times you don't have an immediate action. Instead, you just need to keep having the long-term faithfulness of growing the wheat. So, Matthew 13 can be really helpful. Again, The the overarching reminder that we're talking about here is while we need to first react with joy when we see God's work, that doesn't mean we throw out wisdom. Wisdom tells us that when the sower goes out with the seed, there will be seed that springs up but actually doesn't produce the fruit in the long term. And the parable of the wheat and the weeds remind us that in both cases, what we see that proves the reality of a decision in a moment is fruit over a lifetime. We just can't see that right away. So, what do you do to encourage people? Then, youth leaders who've seen their kids give their life to Christ, a salt student who comes back just absolutely on fire for God. What do you do to encourage those people? Well, there's a couple things that I encourage people toward, okay? First, I always want to encourage people the way Paul did. I think of Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, Paul has done ministry in um, Antioch, and his, his, it says they're leaving, they were talking to people, and it says, Acts thirteen forty three. after the synagogue had dispensed many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas. So many people who were following them immediately, who were, and Paul and Barnabas were speaking with them, and here's the phrase, and urging them to continue in the grace of God. Don't just taste the grace of God in a moment. You have to continue in the grace of God. That's what I say to students who come back with a mountaintop experience. I don't say, oh, that's not a real thing. That was just emotionalism. I say, oh, how beautiful. Now continue in the grace of God. I love what Simeon Bell did, our youth pastor. The week after we have an explosive movement of God at camp, you know, the very next week at youth, they started a brand new series all about spiritual disciplines. Because you aren't changed simply by an experience in a moment. Don't disregard that. Don't despise that. But you're going to need discipline to help you to continue in the grace of God. I love that movement. That is pastoral wisdom on display. You don't just say, hey, you had an incredible moment. No, 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 no. That, you don't stop there. You say, continue, continue. Don't despise the moment. Don't, don't stay there. Don't despise the moment, but don't stay there. Continue in the grace of God and urge them to continue in the grace of God. So what do we do when we see a revival work of God, a movement of God in our local church? Well, we don't despise it. We rejoice. Secondly, we have a deep realization that the long-term fruit of what we want to see, we're not going to be able to just see in the moment. But thirdly, we're going to encourage these people. We're going to exhort them. Continue in the grace of God. Keep going. And what that looks like right away is as I tell them the big theme, continuing the grace of God, I point to very small and immediate steps of obedience. Step toward spiritual disciplines. Step toward confession of sin. Step toward immediate obedience. For instance, Let's talk just briefly about how we see baptism in light of this, and this is something that it comes up often, even for parents of a teenager who comes back and they say, "I just don't want it to be this, you know, mountaintop high," and then they get baptized, but they didn't really contemplate it. And man, I get that; I totally get that. And I think that we need to understand that baptism has two functions in the New Testament that are interrelated, but they're somewhat different. The first is. Baptism in the New Testament was a public proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ. That's why there are oftentimes in the book of Acts where it seems like a person places faith in Jesus and then immediately goes, hey, look, there's water. I should be baptized. Okay? So, in other words, baptism is ba- we baptize one of the phrases we use at Cornerstone it's a historically baptist phrase to think about how you do believers baptism and say it's believers baptism we baptize on profession of faith that's so important because people go well you might baptize people who are who are not really converted i'm like yeah we don't baptize on like exemplary life that proves their conversion, we baptize on a simple profession of faith. Do they recognize they were sinner and that Jesus is their Savior? If so, you don't baptize on perfection of life, you baptize on profession of faith. Okay, so that's the first thing is baptism in the New Testament functions that way. And this is just a little side note, by the way. Many, 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 many modern evangelical churches have replaced baptism with altar calls. Here's what I mean. They say, you need to come forward and profess your faith in Jesus. Now, I am not, if you were saved during an altar call moment, I'm not trying to knock that. But what I'm saying is that that's never referenced in the New Testament. That's never the way it talks about. The altar call of the New Testament is called baptism. That's the way it works. The public proclamation that a person has made a personal decision to follow Christ is seen in a public baptism. That's why, for instance, baptism done privately makes no sense. Baptism is always, by its nature, a public proclamation of faith. So, that's important to note. When people come back revved up about God and they want to think about getting baptized, well, on one level, if they're ready to make a public proclamation of faith in Jesus, we need to encourage them toward that. But here's the second reality. Baptism doesn't only function as a public proclamation of faith, baptism functions as a very public um, proclamation of commitment, of allegiance, of loyalty. All right. Now let me explain this a bit. In the first century, you have to think very concretely here. When Paul goes around, for instance, he shares with this Philippian jailer, you know, about how he can be saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and then he talks to him about being baptized that jailer doesn't then ask him well what are you talking about with baptism Be- because the act of baptism of immersion publicly in water was deeply known and practiced in Jewish and Greco-Roman culture as an identifying rite that connected you as a ritual with a larger group of people that's often we don't have that that commonly in our american culture that baptism is like this immediate identifier right, for people. So just understand, in the first century, many of the groups had some concept of an initiating rite of baptism that kind of connected you to the broader movement you were a part of. So that means that baptism for Christians didn't simply function as an instant profession of faith. It also functioned as kind of a very public declaration of a lifetime commitment. And in that sense then, baptism is not just like an altar call where you come forward and tell people that you've been saved. It's actually a bit closer to, um, an analogy that I give is that baptism is a bit closer to a wedding ceremony. Think about a wedding ceremony for a minute, okay? A wedding ceremony, it's very public. It's not private at all. You have to do a wedding ceremony in front of people, there are witnesses to this because the nature of the promises that you are making to one another are so long-term, lifetime insignificant, they shouldn't be done haphazardly. It's why we even culturally mock, you know, like a Vegas wedding chapel wedding where you just on a spur of the moment like, yeah, let's go get married. Well, there's something about that that actually doesn't understand the significance of marriage. That's somewhat similar to someone who's like, yeah, let's just jump in and get baptized. You're not recognizing the significance, in some ways, of the commitment where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he has to die to himself. He ha- even the Think of what the picture of baptism is. In the water, I get in there as a sinner who's been saved by Christ, and I say, actually, I'm going under the water to signify that I have been buried with Christ I, I'm, I'm connecting my, I have died to my old life and now I'm going to be raised up out of the water. I'm raised to new life in Christ. This, the picture of baptism is a profound picture of a lifetime commitment, a radical change of nature that Jesus has brought about. It's not a flippant thing. A marriage ceremony, baptism, guys, it's when we're putting the ring on our finger. So you shouldn't jump into that water unless you're ready to make the lifetime sort of commitment. Okay, that's important because, again, how do you react to a time of revival, of an incredible outburst? There'll be this outburst where people want to jump forward. And look, if they're making a clear profession of faith in Jesus, we're not holding people back from baptism. But on the other side, even as we prepare them for baptism, we're telling them, you're getting ready to put a ring on your finger. You need to continue in the grace of God. That's how we encourage people. Okay, so let's step back. Summarize here. How do we react? To this extraordinary season of gospel movement. These reports of dozens and dozens of people coming to faith in Jesus. What do we do? Well, first, all oh, friends, we should rejoice. Isn't God good? Isn't the gospel the best news in the whole world? We should rejoice. Secondly, we should apply wisdom to step back and understand that it's okay for us to say, you know what? even in moments of great work of God, there will be wheat and weeds. There will be seed that's sown and springs up right away, but doesn't continue forward. So actually, that means thirdly, we should be encouraging people to continue in the grace of God, continue in a lifetime sense, continue in immediate acts of obedience to Jesus, even of baptism. So rejoice, rejoice in what God does. Apply wisdom. And then finally, encourage those in times of revival to continue on in the grace of God.